Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hello, this is Asia Tech Podcast, and we are the voice of the ecosystem. Tonight, we're going to talk about Asia Matters, why Asia Matters. We're going to talk about a new 600-page report, which you can get your hands on free wow. if you stick around to the end of this podcast. So let's talk about Asia Matters. My name is Graham Brown, broadcasting from Tokyo. I'm joined on the other side by my colleague, Michael Waits in Bangkok. Michael, how you doing? I am doing super, Graham. Excellent. On the spot, kicking off, off the bat, straight away, quote from Jim Rogers, who comes from the same background as you, investment banking. So he Jim does. Yeah, I mean, the legendary investment biker himself. So Jim Rogers said... Investment biker, I like it. Yeah, that was a great book, that one. It was. If you were smart in 1807, you moved to London. If you were smart in 1907, you moved to New York City. And if you are smart in 2007, so it dates it a little, you move to Asia. Jim Rogers, Michael Waits, agree or not? Discuss. So it's hard to disagree. And if you think about what we've talked about this entire year, or actually last year, all of 2017, it really all coalesced around that whole concept of Asia Matters, right? Started all the way back in January of 2017, ending in December of 2017. And that is, you know, how big is this ecosystem? How fast is it growing? And why does it matter? And we built that thesis over the entire year. Yeah. Then about November, December, we started talking about this report that we were going to put out, which is now finished, right? And we'll start, we started releasing sort of a pre-launch today. We'll finish that launch by the end of this week or the beginning of next week. And we'll put that report out in four pieces. Question is, is that right? If you were smart in 2007, did you move to Asia? I think the answer is unequivocal yes, right? Mm. Yeah. If you think about the combination of you and me, just the two of us, we've probably staked 50 years of our lives. Wow, so that much. Yeah, on just that theory. And that theory is Asia is going to be the biggest, fastest growing region in the world, at least for the next 15 or 25 years. Yeah. And it's going to dominate this century. You know, there was this whole concept <clears throat> before the year 2000, excuse me, that, you know, the next century was going to be the Asian century and everybody talked about it. People talk about a whole bunch of things that never actually come to fruition. But this is something that is happening every single day. And I actually like you, you you say this a lot off the air, you know, like while the Reformation or the Renaissance right. was going on. No, but yeah. I like this concept. We should talk about it, right? Mm. While the Renaissance was going on, nobody said, wow, it's great to be alive during the Renaissance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody said that. Right. How, the, how would they have known? They were like too busy living their lives and just trying to eat like everybody else. Yeah. But when it was over and history looked at it, people said, wow, that was the Renaissance. And they named and, it. In hindsight. And they named it. Right, right. We've already named this. This is the Asian century. You can't argue about it. And if you are smart, you have left other parts of the world, just like Jim Rogers said back then and actually did do himself yeah. and moved to Singapore. Now, we've actually doubled down on the moving to Singapore, right? Mm. And we live in like Asia, Asia. And exactly. one of the reasons why we do that is because we think – and I want to talk about something that happened to me today a little bit later – but we think that actually being here means that you get to understand in real terms on a day-to-day -day basis again in your everyday life exactly what it means and exactly what the challenges are.
to be in Asia and to be in Southeast Asia. And there's no way to do that if you're living in San Francisco, if you're based in Chicago. And frankly, even if you're based in Singapore, you, Singapore, you don't get the same sort of visceral feeling that we get by being here. Being on and the in ground, that yeah. sense, yeah, being on the ground. In that sense, I completely agree with, with Jim Rogers. And I will say this too. We'll, uh, over the next few weeks, as we continue to release this report and talk about it, let me just say this. I sent the report to somebody today. You and I sent it to some people in the pre-launch. One of the people responded to me, report was awesome, and and I quote, and talk about data. Yeah. It's filled with data, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why we did this report in four pieces. Mm. Well, that- with data nerds, though, right? I mean, you come from the trading side of investment banking sure. and I come sure. from research business. So. Right. And you couldn't get two bigger nerds when it comes no, to numbers. Exactly. We like data. We like numbers. And I think we realize data tells stories and that's what we're trying to do here, isn't it? Rather than just presenting the data, we want to say, okay, this is what it actually means. It's all very well knowing that it's worth a trillion or six trillion. But what yeah. does that mean to me? Yeah. Nobody cares about that, right? I can tell you that you know, in 2012, that, that this was the GDP per capita, or this was the growth in e-commerce, and then in 2017, this is what it is, and just leave it at that. Mm. Or I can tell you about the significance of it, and I can present things to you, or you can present them to us in a way that really tell that story. Yeah. And I think that that's really what we were trying to do with this, is just, and you know, one of the things that I learned and I felt, and I'd love to know your feelings on this as well, is you know, like I said, we've committed 50 years of our life to the, our lives to this. We know how significant Asia is. We live in it every day. We've traveled. We talked about this, too, to multiple cities over the last year, um, telling people, talking to people, and learning about stuff. And to be fair, I'm willing to admit this, right? I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was this big. Right. And this is this well, – really, I was reading through this. I mean just some – and I like the way you've, you've built this, if I can be fair, to say that. And that is you need to start with numbers. Yeah. Right? You just start with some simple numbers, right? And I like the way you do that. It's like just – let me give you some random facts. Zero is the number of buildings in the United States that are listed in the world's top ten by 2020. Ouch. Zero. Yeah. No, that, that's a surprise, right? I mean we talk about economies and growth. But when you see the manifestation of that in these symbols of, you know, we'll talk a bit more about some of the other ones as well. What what for historically has been the symbol of power and, and wealth? Yeah, wealth and cultural dominance of the West. Confidence, so, like super confidence, right? Yeah. I'm going to build the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. That was what the Empire State Building was. That was what the Twin Towers were, right? Yep. Back in the day in New York. This is the financial center of the world. This is the biggest building in the world. I dare you to go bigger. Was that confidence, that, that level of sort of, I've got the biggest balls around, is really, was really important, and now it's zero. Yeah. And that's a surprise, isn't it? I mean, it'd be surprised if you're actually living in that world, right? You talked about not being able to see it on the ground if you're outside of Asia. But that's what we want to show people is to say, Hey, look, there are these changes and there are numbers, but here's also the manifestation of that when people think, wow, this is what's really going on. This is no longer about Asia catching up, is it? And this is the story we want to get across today is about when we talk about the size, it's not just a size in millions of population and billions, right? There's a lot more to it. And that's one of the big stories that we want to get out today and want to share yeah, I mean, look, it's really neat to say, and, and we do do this, right, because it is significant at some level. There are more people inside this circle than outside this circle. Look, I've talked about that a lot over the yeah. past five years. But you want to know what may be more important? 
10 is the number of years younger that the average Indonesian is than the average American. Yeah, yeah. That makes a big difference, yeah. doesn't it? Well, it does because it means that there's there's optimism in youth. Yeah. I can't believe I just said that, but there really is. <laughs> <laughs> As a young old guy, an old young guy. <laughs> an old young guy saying that, like, but there really is optimism in right. youth. And I think it's really important, right? And if you just look at all of the issues that are going to drive growth over the next 25 or maybe even 50 years – you know, females are, and I, I'm not going to go through all the numbers because I really want people to go through this report and draw some of their own conclusions on top of the conclusions that we've already drawn, right? But women are a bigger part of the economy in Asia than they are anywhere else in the world. Yeah, that is a that's surprise, a isn't it? And that's you know, the view we have of Asia is tend tends to be socially less progressive. But these right. sort of stats are coming out, especially when you look at female entrepreneurship, which I suppose is is. If anything, it's indicative of emancipation at some form or level, right? Sure. If women can make their own money without relying on the man, now that's yeah, I mean, a pretty advanced society. Sure. And Thailand is like the perfect example yeah. of this. Thai women have the any opportunity they want. They take it. They're powerful. They're intelligent. They're, you know, they're convincing. They're everything that a great businessman, businesswoman should be. And it's just incredible to be a part of it. But I think what's really interesting about this report is we talked about a whole bunch of things over the past year. In, and we did put data around most of it. But now we've organized it. We've organized the most recent data we could possibly find. And if you read through this, it tells an insanely compelling story yeah. about why Asia matters. You know, let's, let's talk a little bit about investing, too, and, and why Asia matters from that perspective, at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. You talk about if you're an investor, right, if you're building a fund, whether it's a PE fund, a venture capital fund, or even investing in the stock market, right, what, you're, what investors are really looking for is outsized returns. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means where can I take the same amount of risk, so an equivalent risk, and get a much higher return? Right, so if I'm investing in early stage startup in California and I'm investing in early stage startup in Thailand, it's basically the same type of risk, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. I have to rely on whether the team is good and all the things we've talked about, right? Whether the market is big enough, whether there's product market fit, all of the same things. But where has most of the investment taken place in in the um, in the venture capital world over the last twenty five or thirty years? Most of it's been in Silicon Valley in the United States. Mm. We actually have data. We talked about this data offline that says what was it? Seventy four billion dollars was invested. This is really interesting to me, right? It's somewhere in this report, but seventy four billion dollars was invested in five thousand some odd deals in the United States in two thousand in the last quarter of two thousand seventeen. Is that yeah. right, or in the whole year? In the last quarter, yeah. This is this is coming out in part two, by the way, just as a heads up. Yeah, just as on. a heads up. Yeah, but I, but but it's significant, right? And almost the same amount of money, so seventy billion dollars, mm. seventy odd billion dollars, was invested in about two thousand eight hundred, if my memory serves me correctly, number of deals mm. in Asia. Yeah. So almost the same amount of money in half the size of deals. So again, it's easy to just publish that number and walk away, but let's just say this explicitly. That means almost twice as much money on average was invested in each deal, almost in Asia as was in the United States. And again, one of the reasons why is because you can make bigger bets, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. You think that the likelihood, so the, when you think that the probability or the possibility of 
outsized or higher returns are possible, you're willing to commit more money to it. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big tells is that there's a lot more spreading of risk in the United States now and in the Western world because they don't know where there are going to be outsized returns. They're less sure of themselves. I think investors in Asia are much more sure of themselves in the sense that um, they're much more likely to have outsized returns on a statistical basis than they are in the U.S. because a lot of that's been arbitraged out. And yeah. I thought that was pretty significant. And, and it shows a maturation, isn't it, of the whole ecosystem in that it can invest in itself and it's not completely reliant on Silicon Valley as it once was. This is the whole business of not being the catch-up economy anymore. It's now able to stand on its own feet and invest in its own startups. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the whole idea? That's another thing that we touched on, right? And that is, um, you know, we're not copying anymore. Yeah. And I say we, and I don't even feel like it's the royal we, right? There was a whole, if you go back to Rocket Internet and all of their investments in emerging markets, a lot of them were, you know, let's build another marketplace. Let's build another same thing that was built in the United States. Groupon was their first example of why that worked. And a whole bunch of daily deal sites got built out here. And most of them died. Right. But that was the first foray into emerging yeah. markets. And now all those things are gone. But if you look at, I mean, should we talk about this at all? So what is the, what is, uh, actually, I don't want to say this. Let's just say this. On November 11th every year, so Singles Day, there's a remember. massive, yeah, there's, I don't even want to say it. I want people to look at this. But there's a massive mm -hmm. amount of e-commerce that gets done on one day at one company in one country. It's yeah. insane. Go and look at the numbers. And that's, yeah, I don't even want to say it. I want people to go and look at the numbers on it, okay? But it's larger than the economies of most countries. And all this trading gets done in one day. And it's not only because of the discounting, although it doesn't doesn't hurt, right? Yeah, still the volume. The, yeah, the volume is just huge, Go, right? go and have a, I mean, get your hands on a copy of the report and go and have a look at the numbers in terms of sales. I mean, I want, don't want to give away this, those top-line figures, but just a bit of insight. Go and have a look at that number of transaction transactions per second. Second at peak, at peak. We'll give them number now. At peak, they did three hundred and twenty-five thousand transactions in one second. One second. Yeah, just my head is in my hands because right. we used to build, we used to build, you know, very high speed, super fault tolerant trading systems when I was, you know, at Goldman Sachs and EBS in Japan. And, you know, the idea was, could we send a topics basket, which at the time had 1,700 names. So 1,700 companies were in topics or a little bit more, a little bit less. And we tried to be able to send a basket of those stocks at the proper weightings in under a second. Yeah. But just think about it. 1,700. Right. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. It's nothing in comparison <laughs> to 325,000 per second. Right. And that would be like 300,000, not credit card numbers, could be WeChat payments, credit card numbers, everything, bank accounts being dealt with. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, that's just incredible. The size and the scope and the scale. And I guess that's right. the thing that, you know, when I was going through this report, and I'm sure when you were going through it as well, and I'd love to know your opinion on this, just the scale was yeah. daunting in a way. Well, let, let's pick out that point which was made by McKinsey in the report. And we'll come to this in a minute because you talked about the copycat, you know, that copycat period, which was sort of evolving out of here in Asia. And 
In, yeah. You know, that has to happen because, you know, it has to it learn. It has to sort of look outside and say, okay, what works? What can we bring in and use here? And let's just copy that and build on it. And we saw that in technology and we've seen it very much in building ecosystems as well. So everywhere has to have their own Silicon Valley or their... Right, their own, everybody wants to be the next Silicon exactly. Valley or that, their that, own Silicon Valley, whatever that means, right? That was it for the last 10 years. And that's kind of how we've been looking at evolving ecosystems. And then this is quote from Jonathan Wurzel, who's the director of McKinsey Global. Right. And he's saying, and this to your point about size, he says, I don't see why in the future China wouldn't have, get this, 15 to 20 Silicon Valleys. <laughs> I'm just laughing because when you think about it, it sounds, it sounds impossible. Right. And, and yet if you go to China and you look at the data – and you realize that like 80% of everything that gets built that's electronics comes out of Shenzhen. Yeah. Like, doesn't that qualify as a Silicon Valley? Well, exactly. Especially when it's got how many? 25 million people. 25 million people. Like, I don't even remember, but if you go back 25 years, Shenzhen probably had like... 25. Less, well, less than a million people in it. Yeah. It was, I mean, look at the comparison. You can have a look in the report, some of the city comparisons of the skylines, which is just fascinating, right? It's not just about putting the data, but it's trying to tell this story so you could actually see it and touch it, if you like. Yeah. Go really back to the US. I mean, talk about 15 to 20 Silicon Valleys. I mean, they all have their own sort of tech hubs, don't they? I mean, how, yeah. how many would there be of notable size in the US? Obviously, that's objective in the US. Four or five, maybe? Yeah. So what do you have? I mean, you have San Francisco, for sure. So that's the real Silicon Valley, what people call Silicon Valley, right? There's a venture capital hub in Boston, one in New York. Right. Um, Chicago is kind of lame. Like there's really nothing there. That's why Groupon used to get so much attention because it was built in Chicago and there was nothing else really to talk about. You know, Denver, Colorado has something, but really it's just, it's isolated with just the Y Combinator team. So that doesn't really count. Austin, Texas, maybe. Yeah. But you know, that yeah, was again, that. 25 or 30 years ago where Dell was built, but that doesn't really count anymore. I think. Yeah. But and nothing even Los could, Angeles. Yeah, nothing. right. Yeah, so, Los Angeles is all media, isn't it? So maybe Redmond, but they're all based around one or two big companies. But to claim there's going to be 15 to 20 Silicon Valleys is a huge claim. So to your point about the size, it's not just like China is producing one big ecosystem in one big city. This is the story, isn't it? And a big story in this report is something we were both quite amazed and sat down and thought about. Because when people say, you know, okay, mm. what's the story for this country and that country? What's the story for right. China? We went along with that because that's how everything's been looked at upon, you know, up until this stage, isn't it? It's always done by country. But then we realized, hang on a second. This isn't a story about countries. This is a story about cities and not just cities, but mega cities, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. and, you know, whether they're, Shenzhen, Guangdong, Bangkok, Jakarta. These are all powerhouses of this startup ecosystem. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, because this was one of the other comments that we got from, you know, the 50 to 100 people that we sort of gave the pre-launch sneak preview report to. And one of the questions was, and I think a few people actually asked this, was the report's awesome. So glad to have it. Looking forward to the other parts of it are you going to do country analyses? And if I go back and I was looking at the notes with somebody on this yesterday. So somebody actually asked me like, how long have we been working on this? Right. And I, you know, I, I went through the timeline with them, but I also, they were more interested in the thought process that we had, right? Mm. How do you and Graham figure out 
what the topics are. How do you figure out what the structure is? How do you figure out what the arc of the information is that you're going to present? So I went through that with them and I was going back through the notes and I remember we actually considered um, doing country by country analyses. Mm. And we spent some time doing it and it really felt like going down the wrong road. Right. And one of the things we figured out was, you know, nobody cares if, and, and let's use Silicon Valley as an example, right? Nobody's, nobody says I'm going to go and start a company in the United States. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go start a company. I'm going to go to San Francisco. I'm going to be in the Valley and I'm going to start a company. You know, Seattle's actually not that far away. Yeah. No one goes to Seattle except for Jeff Bezos 30 years ago or 25 years ago and starts a company. And even, even, and no one even says California. I'm going to go to California and start a right. company. They go to San Francisco. They don't go to Oakland. It's right across the bay. And there's nothing wrong with Oakland. Berkeley's there. Like all these great universities are on the other side of the, on the other side of the bridge as well, but nobody does that. They go to Silicon Valley. And what we realized was there's been a really tired and really old and it's kind of worn out analyses of, you know, the GDP per capita in Vietnam is this, or the Philippines is growing like that. And what we realized was nobody cared. And we definitely didn't care. I know I didn't care. I mean, I can speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for both of us. What we found out was there's a city-by-city city and mega-city competition going on, and it's going on globally. Right. Right. And I think it speaks to a lot of the sort of secular changes that are taking place. I don't necessarily want to talk about decentralization and sort of the lack of you know, necessity for countries, but cities matter. People mm. migrate from the countryside into big cities. And even something like Los Angeles, which is, again, not that far away, it's a drive away from San Francisco, a few hours, doesn't have the same or just isn't considered to have the same ecosystem as San Francisco, and it's in the same state. So, I mean, it has all the same tax laws and other things. But the more important thing was most companies in the United States – particularly in the startup space, are incorporated in Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> Think exactly. about it. Anybody know anything about Delaware except for the fact that you incorporate your company there? Yeah. I bet most people couldn't find it on a map. And one of the reasons why they can't find it on a map is because it's tiny. Yeah. And the only reason why Delaware – I mean, there are tons of reasons why, but one of the main reasons why Delaware actually changed its corporate um, startup – not startup laws, but its corporate development laws – so that people would incorporate there. They gave them tax benefits for doing it, and they built a whole ecosystem around just start your company here. But mm -hmm. the reality is that nobody takes Uber and says, I'm going to move my entire team to Delaware, and I'm going to start up there. Cities matter. And what we yeah. found is when we went and did the analysis is that cities matter in Asia as well. Right? No one says, I'm going to start my company in Vietnam. They say, I'm going to start it in Ho Chi Minh. Some yeah. of them consider Hanoi. And when we talked to Bobby Liu – Right, which we will, which we will do, and I sp I've spoken to him a bunch of times. He says, "Oh, you have to come to Hanoi. There's a great, um, there's a great competition between Hanoi mm. and Ho Chi Minh. That's in the same country. Yeah, the laws are the same, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's a battle going on, right, between them. In the same way, <clears throat> you know, that there's a battle going on <laughs> in the United States in the football world between like Pittsburgh." And New England. Right. It's the same type of rivalry. But it's, it's city healthy, to city. right? It's healthy. It's right? very healthy. But it's city to city. It's not country to country. Yeah. yeah. Right? doesn't mean anything. You know, doesn't mean anything. And I know that I'm kind of banging on on this. But what we really found out was that nobody wants to look at another analysis of the difference between this country and that country. And yeah. sure, I get the fact. And, you know, you know, email me if you want or, or send me some negative 
comments on Twitter for sure. If you say, yeah, but the laws are different here and the laws are different there, sure. I get that. But again, the laws are different in Delaware than they are in California. But what really ends up happening is people incorporate in Delaware the same way they are incorporating now in Singapore. Okay. And I've spoken to people about this too. We should change the laws and, and pick your country, fill in the blank, right? In, I'm going to pick Vietnam because I don't live there and I don't have a vested interest, right? But we should change the laws in Vietnam and make it easier to incorporate and make it easier to raise money, make the laws more understandable, all this stuff. But the reality is that if you want to get globally funded, you're going to start your, you're going to incorporate your company in Singapore or in Hong Kong. And that battle, I think we can argue about it, but that battle has been won. Mm. But the question is, where do you want to have the best sort of design resources? Where do you think there are the best, you know, UX resources? Where are the best programmers? Where are the best company builders? What's the biggest market? Which market do you know better? And people decide that based on cities. These are the engines of growth, right? They are. They are. Mega cities as well. Let's put it into context. I mean, we've mentioned China. Obviously, that's a good starting point. I mean, people know that China is big, one billion big. They know it's three, four times as big as the US in terms of population. We all know that. That's nothing new. Every school kid knows that. They're taught that from a young age. But then you look at the mega cities. And by the way, there's 50 mega cities in Asia alone, above 5 million in population. But when you go to China itself, here's the interesting fact. And this is something that I didn't know. And I don't know how well versed you were on this as well, because I'm not a student necessarily of demographics. Right. In China, there are 15 cities alone, <laughs> bigger than New York. Yeah. And I put down a challenge to anybody who doesn't live in China, because they're slightly at an advantage, to name right. them. To name them. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Right. So I had this conversation, right? Because obviously I had this report before anybody else did. And I was sitting with a friend and saying, okay, how many cities in China are bigger than New York? And, you know, they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Right. Ten. You know, I mean, they get, and they thought they were guessing high. And I said, good guess, but 15. And I said, okay, besides Beijing and Shanghai, yeah. name, name three of them. Because Beijing and Shanghai, easy. You can Everyone guess knows if them. you're wrong. Everyone knows them. You would, have known them. you would have known those 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. And I've been to Nanjing, so I knew that. And maybe like Hangzhou, maybe. Chongqing, no one's ever heard of. Right. right, Chung- right. But how about like Wuhan? Yeah. Wuhan, 18 18 and a half million people, twice the size of New York. No disrespect to Wuhan, but where is Wuhan and what what is it? What what is its claim to fame? And that's so, I mean, that's disrespectful on my side because, you know, I don't know anything about it. But nearly 20 million people living there, it has its own tech scene. Yeah. You know, a lot of these cities as well. I mean, this is not a China-led thing. Like places like Wuhan want to establish themselves as education and sort of not necessarily deep tech, but design led development center of expertise in the world. Right. I mean, it's just amazing. I think Wuhan is wants to be a world leader in education. Yeah. I mean, and retail. Who would have known? Yeah. And guess what else? Guess what else? Um, guess what else Guangzhou has that no one's ever heard of? <laughs> Seriously. It has an opera house that looks like it came out of like an IMP dreamscape. <laughs> but just nobody knows about this. And right. again, I like to say this, like ignorance does not equal stupidity. Well, there's, there's an interesting so, thing going on here, isn't it? Let's sort of unpack this a little bit. Guangzhou, because this is in the report and we go into a bit more depth about this. I mean, look at the Google 
traffic for people searching for Guangzhou and New York. And Guangzhou is three times as big as New York. You know, it's not a, uh, a backwater by any measure. It has its own opera house as well as, you know, some phenomenal retail parks as well. But if you were to look at the data, and this is in the report, you see a slide of it. It's not like everybody in the world is searching for New York and then, you know, there's this little pocket of people searching for Guangzhou in China. It's not, there's a lot of people searching for Guangzhou outside of China, especially in Africa, where there's a yep. big Chinese presence, you know, yep. the, the countries around China. And, and given that, you know, they can't even use Google in China, right? So, you know, that sort of puts them as a slight disadvantage. But you look at the actual traffic and I think, you know, New York search terms versus Guangzhou search terms, it's almost like a factor of 20 to 30 times more, right. if not greater. And some goes all the way up to about 100 times more people searching for New York, which is just interesting, isn't it? It's that, you know, it's a lot more than just, you know, numbers. There's a whole sort of cultural narrative going on here, which keeps one in a position of power over the other. And that reflects in a whole bunch of things like finance and access to talent and what have you. Yeah, but I want to make a point that you kind of sort of glossed over. You can't use Google in China. So it's not like it's all Chinese people, which has just a population advantage in their ability to search. This is people right. outside of China. Maybe there's some VPNing. Okay, fair enough. I know how that works. But if you just think about the outside world, okay, still searching more for China and cities in China than they are in the United States and in New York – that's a big deal. And the other thing I'd love to do is, and you'll see this in the report, for the mega cities that we discussed, right, and we gave some data on, you've put a picture of each one of those cities in the report. Mm. And I would bet if you just took the title off <laughs> and just showed people the cities. Right. That would be interesting. No idea. We've got to have that. We've got to put that quiz out there. Like, no idea. Is this Chongqing or Wuhan? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about is this Chongqing or is it Minneapolis? Right. Right? Or is this London? Like, how would you know? Yeah. Apart from right. the skyscrapers, right? I mean, in some cases. Yeah, but even, even, even so, though, right? So, like, there are some iconic buildings in Shanghai that everybody's seen, but I don't think anybody's seen the iconic buildings in Wuhan or in Jinan or in Chengdu or Chongqing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah very much so. I mean, it's not like we're looking at america 20 30 years ago is it and thinking wow look they're catching up on us it's not like that i mean you look at these cities now and uh, now they have the benefit of being a design with forethought put this whole thing together right because they they have a carte blanche in many respects right and say okay we're going to build this city you see that in singapore don't you where you have that ability to plan because you don't have all that kind of you know legacy to build this thing out and some of these cities are phenomenal and Going to back to that point of attracting talent, you know, pollution aside in some of these places, these must be phenomenal places to live. Yeah, and I wanted to – you brought up something else too, and I want to mention it, airports, okay? Mm. Airports are not just, you know, iconic buildings in any individual city. They're the first thing that somebody sees when they've traveled from outside that city into that city if they're coming by air. Obviously, it's redundant to say it. And the airports are amazing, and most of them are new, and most of them are ridiculously efficient. Okay, and again, if I said to somebody, what are the top five airports in the world, yeah. it would probably go something like this. Heathrow, yeah. <laughs> John, F., John F. Kennedy. I had to laugh at Heathrow, sorry, because I've been there so many times. 
Yeah, I haven't been there in a while. But I'm just saying, like, if you ask most people, they right. wouldn't say they wouldn't say Seoul. No, Incheon and and Incheon, right? And and look, I've been to Singapore Change Airport so many times over the last twenty years, and it just gets better. I love it. We talk about this every time we go, but I don't know if there's a more efficient. No. I don't know how like they land so many planes there. So many people get off the plane, and immigration has never taken me more than like five minutes. Yeah, where are all the people? I don't, I don't know. And they have getting on with their thing, aren't they? They're not standing waiting. But it does make a difference, doesn't it? And the only one of these airports that isn't in Asia is in Munich. Munich, yeah. Which kind of makes sense if you think about like German efficiency and German. And like it fits into a pattern, at least for me. The honorary Asians. Yeah, but even, you know, what is this? According to Skytrax, right? 2017, it says that even Haneda, which is an old airport close to the city center yeah. in relative terms, is also one of the world's top five airports. Yeah. And there's been a ton of renovation work that's been done there. I just think it's indicative of um, like why all this stuff really matters. Getting stuff done. And you can see that, can't you, in terms of the economy, just how fast these regions are growing. Because the airports really are symbols, aren't they, in a way? Because you need money, you need vision, and you need growth to create them. And what's sort of happening now is airports just one part of these sort of blossoming of Asian megacities. And yeah. now, now, now they've sort of put the infrastructure in place. The, the next step is, you know, creating that, startup ecosystem that's really what we're starting to see and this virtual circle i think we need to talk about because this is this is key isn't it why mega cities are a core to the startup ecosystems in asia and there's a virtual you can find this in the report it's about slide 50 slide 52 which is the virtual circle which is where you start with large numbers of people moving to cities and you know this this is Everywhere in Asia, you go to Bangkok, you go to Shenzhen, Jakarta, you see this huge influx of locals. So people have moved in from often the, if it's in Indonesia, it's the kampungs, you know, it's the villages or the fields. They've moved to the city for a better life. So the younger people, they move in search of work. And that then translates into a competitive advantage. So suddenly now you have access to a lot of cheap labor and scale. So you can create these big companies these big manufacturing companies maybe and that then creates wealth in the area which then creates a middle class which creates this sort of secondary evolution which is now you have middle class with money who invest it or invest it you know specialize and put their money into assets or real estate or people start investing in startups right and then you get this sort of second evolution of the circle which is now we've gone through that cycle in most of asia Asia's gone from being this sort of like just this city of these cities of millions and millions of people who just can churn out, you know, toys and electronics to a stage now where they've created this wealth where they're now saying, okay, let's invest in technology and startups. And now you're starting to see this second wave, which is Americans and British and Europeans and Australians and take your pick people moving to Asia and these cities, whether it's Shenzhen or Singapore or Bangkok. And we're, we're now on this second trajectory, which is the second evolution of the Asian megacity. And yeah. that's, I think, a story that's emerging. Yeah. And it, it is a virtuous circle. 
and it doesn't stop happening, right? And you're right. Once people once people come into the city from outside the city, it feeds off itself. So what they do is they evolve into the middle class. They earn some money. They invest that money into other businesses. When they invest that money into other businesses or in other assets, they need to get more people come into the city. And then they build better services there, better hospitals, better mm-hmm. schools, better transportation, better food distribution. Everything's better. And then more people come in. And you're right. <clears throat> Once that happens, now you just have not only local people from surrounding sort of rural areas, but you have people from all over the world say, hey, there's opportunity there. Right. And you get you start to getting foreigners move into like big central cities in China Right. One of the guys we know, Mark, did that. He's got a house like right outside of Chengdu or Chongqing. I can't remember. Yeah. And that's his base. OK, yeah. he writes software there. He, he would ran tech stars from there. Like, it's just really interesting that once that happens, you get that virtual sort of and once people find out that there's opportunity there, that there's money there, then exactly as you say, there becomes a really a big demographic advantage and a big competitive advantage for people. And they just don't stop coming. There's a slide in the report. And this may change, by the way, because there may be extra slides added or slides taken out. It's 56. So it's around about slide 56 if you're listening to it in 2018, January, which talks about that that flight, the people moving yes. into Asia, right? And it's yeah. interesting because I want to put it into the context of your, you know, your odyssey, if I like, moving to Asia. But there's sort of st- – there's phases. There's sort of 20-year stages with people moving into a new market. And this is – you know, this goes way back to the 80s when people came to Asia the first. And now that was sort of 80 to 99. And then there was like 2000 to 2019, which we're just finishing up on. And now this next stage, which we'll talk about in the minutes, which is 2020 onwards. So this first stage, let's go back to that, where Asia was the frontier. And you came to Asia in what year? Well, so my first time in Japan was in 1985. Right. So this fits in perfectly. And the reason why I did it was exactly that, was because nobody what else was coming. And you, you were did. a bit sort of an oddball, <laughs> if I could use an that. Oddball. In the sense no, that no, you, you were different completely. to the – right. But completely, like all of – and I talk about this, like all of my friends went – you know, because my first time in Japan and my first time in Asia actually was my study year abroad. A lot of American students do that. I think they still do that actually. And – you know, I looked around and I said, how am I going to make myself different? Right. Instead of studying French and going to France for a semester abroad or for a year abroad, I'm going to do something that very few people were doing at the time. I'm going to study Japanese and I'm going to go to Japan. Right. That was an exception back then. It's even 85. Insanity. Right. So you, you were just kind of way out on the chart in terms of normal the, the chart of distribution of the population. It was way off. The You're once. off in the shoulder somewhere, aren't you? Way off. Right. I was two or three standard deviations away from whatever the mean <laughs> was or the median, whatever you want to say, right? Um, and that, and it really was like, what the heck? I'm going to go do something that nobody else has done before, and it kind of and and there were you know five or ten people that were with me. There were actually thirty people on my program, but you know I talk about this too. When I first signed up for my Japanese class at Connecticut College, there were thirteen kids in the class. And it was a two-hour class every day. And it was so different and so much harder than every other class. By the time the teacher was done with, like, day one and day two, because we already had to learn, like, two different alphabets in the first, like, two or three days, half the kids were gone. Yeah, wow. They just gave up. Yeah. Yeah, they just gave up. And actually, it reminds me of a conversation that I was having just yesterday with somebody. 
And that is, you know, one of the things about being in Asia is that there are still challenges here. Mm. Okay. And that's that second part of this. There are real opportunities. It is the next big thing, but it's not simple. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's where we are. I mean, you, you got to change, you've got to adapt. And there's a few sort of changes in lifestyle, things that you have to give up, right? To take advantage of those opportunities. And not everybody sees that. I think now we're yeah. in this sort of phase two, around about 2000 to, well, 2019. So another year left, really. There's this opportunist phase where people are moving to Asia because they see the next big thing. They can see this happening and they can see the numbers, but it's not, it's not a closed book, is it? It's not a, it's, it's not a, a guaranteed thing. It's still a risk for a lot of people to come and set up here. But that appeals to a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs especially. And now we're sort of moving. I think there's this next stage coming where Asia, and this will go with a lot of the, the themes that we talk about in the report, like China becoming the world's biggest economy, hegemony, that word comes up again. I don't know if we want to go into that today, but it's sort of, you know, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. But this stage we're going to move into, stage three, is where, you know, people will move to Asia because they're missing out. Because people are going to write back home or tell them, or I say write back home. People don't do that anymore. I'm talking about our experiences, right? <laughs> right back home. What are you? Where's my quill? How yeah, exactly. Send it by pigeon. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's that the Asian you know, the Asian appeal is not going to be one of, uh, as an opportunity, it's going to be one, like if you're not here, you're missing out. And that's going to be the next step. And I think we're not far away from that. Yeah, but I mean, what is that quote that you have in in this report that says, you know, just because the cities of today, the powerful, the wealthy, yeah. the sort of dominant cities of today, there's no reason why in 15 or 25 years, they're going to have to be the same. Like that stuff changes over time. Right. Mark Farber. Right. Yeah. Was it Faber that said Mark Farber that said that as well, yeah. right? I mean, there's some great quotes from people in here, but that that actually really resonated with me. There's just no reason why mm. the incumbents, when we see this, you know, in the startup scene, <clears throat> there's no reason why a right. taxi company has yeah. to be a taxi company forever. That's why Uber works. That's why Gojek works. That's why Grab works. That's why Didi works. Is because the incumbents sit around and say, "We're so powerful. We're so strong." There's no way we're ever going to be able to go away. And yet, while they're not paying attention, hmm. Uber comes along and just completely disintermediates them, right? So it was Farber, Mark Faber, sorry, who said, you know, Asia's 3 billion strong population will have a profound effect on the world. I want people to think about this. Today's richest cities and clusters of wealth are unlikely to retain their exalted positions in the future. Mm. And Faber knows what he's talking about. He's an old um, Asian hand. He's been in the emerging markets before people even talked about emerging markets, right? And Franklin Templeton, where he was basically sitting at the top of the heap, you know, was a pioneer in the space of investing in emerging markets. And he would know this mm. as well or better than anybody. But I think that that's really important to talk about is that today's richest cities, New York, right? Even San Francisco, and the clusters of wealth that are around them, and even in 25 years, you hear it today. Sorry, you hear it today. You hear angel investors. You hear venture capital investors. You hear private equity investors sitting in California, sitting in Silicon Valley and saying, I don't need to invest in anything outside of this city, much less outside of this country, because not only is all of the wealth concentrated here, 
but all of the intelligence is concentrated mm. here. And the intelligence that was it that isn't endemic here is coming here. And they have to come here to get my money, to get my knowledge, and to get my resources so that I can help them grow. And then I can sort of send them back to Asia to get bigger and bring my knowledge back there. Mm. That is over. We talked about this a week ago or two weeks ago. That is just so over. Right. And, you know, one of the other things that I want to talk about, just because I've said it all year and I just want to repeat it, and it's kind of starts off this report. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is, you know, one day and I think that day is coming really soon. OK, is that people are going to wake up and they're going to wonder when did this happen <laughs> and how come how come nobody told me. Right. Don't you think so? I mean, I really yeah, think yeah. that's I really think they're going to wake up and just say, wait a second. When did that happen? Right. Going back to the, the top of the show when we talked about the Reformation, the Renaissance, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, if we put this into historical context, it's interesting because there are patterns which repeat throughout history. And we we always like to think that it, it's different this time, right? I mean, that's sure. always the, the classic phrase used to speak about any kind of bubble, right? Well, when we talk about history, I, I think even if you look at the accounts of the reformation that yeah. any of the actors effectively everybody was an actor at that time within a series of events and nobody knew that there was this bigger thing going on whether it was martin luther nailing the the declaration on the church door or right. you know the attacks on the, the papacy and all that sort of stuff people didn't know that this was a massive change or you know people suddenly reading printed material or creating print machines like gutenberg and stuff like that they didn't yeah. all add it together it was just like oh that guy's just made a, a printing machine it's like okay this isn't about the democratization of information it's just a guy's made a machine which is very interesting and i think that's happening now with the shift to asia is that people just see lots and lots and lots of different pieces of news effectively whether that's okay look you know guangzhou's built an opera house or they're building a road between Hong Kong and Macau or, wow, the second most valuable startup in the world is this company, which you've never heard of called Xiaomi, right? right. So there's a, a string of these events happening now and people aren't sort of stepping back and thinking, hang on a second. This is all part of this huge shift of why Asia matters, right? And that's why people are going to wake up and say, when did this happen? Because they only ever saw the events as if they were there in the Reformation. And then somebody says, oh, by the way, that thing, that was called the Reformation and you were just part of it, but you just kind of slept through it because, you know, you were in it. Yeah, and, and so you brought up a really great word, actually, right? And we, we sort of, we make a little bit of a joke out of this in, in the report and we'll continue to do that. You know, people like to say just offhandedly, you know, shit happens. Yeah. They do. But the reality is that over centuries and throughout history, shifts happen and a shift happens. And we're in the middle of it now. Yeah. And if you can't see it, it just means you're being super myopic and you're not paying any attention. Yeah. And it's happened before. And we know that for a fact it'll happen again. There's a chart in, have a look at, there's a chart in the report which shows, you know, the very long term GDP of, the major powers in the world and it includes the old Chinese empire as well as the, the modern U S empire. Right. Yep. And this is fascinating that, you know, America has really dominated the last hundred years. Easily. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, easily. Sorry, it is what it is, but easily, exact, yeah. easily. You know, and even though, and it compares America to Western Europe, by the way, not just any single country. So it's not like a like for like comparison. So America has dominated a hundred plus years, and the interesting thing is, like China had its time as well. I mean, if you go back, I think on this chart, like from thirteen hundreds to eighteen hundreds, so five hundred years, China was the biggest economy in the world. Yeah, again, easily. It wasn't even close. Nobody was close. Right. But you know, they call it the Middle Kingdom for a reason, right? Right. It was the center of the world, right? So, I mean, that's the fascinating thing. Is It's not like China has always been in the background. It was once as dominant as US and will become again. And that will have an impact. So I think, you know, that's fascinating. If you only, like you mentioned the word myopic, if you only ever focus on what's just right around you right now, here and now, and not look at the long-term fundamentals. And we are fundamental people. We like fundamentals when we look at investments. Yeah. Then you'll miss out. You won't see this thing happening, right? Yeah. No, you won't see it. And here's the other thing I want to bring up before we sort of get to the end of talking about the first, just the first section of this report, which we could talk about forever, right? So you talk about all these cities, right? And that's just – and you just name one of the mega cities in Asia that's greater than 5 million people. All of these, you say, are capable of becoming world-leading startup ecosystems in their own right. You know what we haven't talked about yet? We haven't even spoken about India. No. <laughs> we haven't spoken really about the Philippines. We haven't talked about some other countries. Like we've just spent a lot of time talking about you know Thailand and Vietnam and, and Indonesia. But there's right. so many other big, dynamic, vibrant um, cities and economies out there. Yeah. Right? We could go through the same thing with Mumbai and Gurgaon, right. Delhi and you know Kolkata and Bangalore, yeah. Goa, all these places in India as well. And that's a big deal. Yeah. As it's, well. It's so easy because there's so much to talk about. I mean, you just take one country like China and then, you know, you forget that India is just sort of coming in up. It's, it's moving up those rankings. You look at the, you talk about the megacity data that we published in this report. The six fastest growing megacities in the world, five of them are in India. You know, yeah. that alone is just phenomenal. I think, you know, India is sort of slightly behind in that. You know, we talked about that virtual circle. It's now going through that stage where massive influx of populations into these megacities creates this competitive advantage that hasn't fully translated into that wealth creation which can then be invested into the startup ecosystem right right, right. but that's coming you know if we look at what's happened in oh it's definitely coming yeah china go it's gonna happen there as well so that's the fascinating thing so when you say we haven't even mentioned india it's like it's like well we only have an hour i know yeah it wasn't it wasn't meant to be negative in any sense of the word but like it's the India as well is so large and we could go statistically into talking about the cities in India and how young they are yeah, as well. Yeah. The population there is ridiculously young and actually India and the cities in India know themselves, right? There's a great internal rivalry mm -hmm. in the cities and states there. And they also know if you talk to them that there's a massive opportunity for them in the investment space, in the startup space, in cross-border investments. And that means investment going both ways, not just investing capital from India outside of India, but getting foreign investors to come into India in all the, all those cities that you just talked about, right? Because they are really huge. Mm. And that's going to be a great thing to watch as, as well as we continue to not just publish this report, but talk about it. I think, look, we said this was the Asian century, this is going to be maybe the year where people actually figure out 
we put this report out and all the sections of this report out that Asia matters in a way that they could not have conceived. As I said at the beginning, and, and you agreed at the beginning of this conversation, we live it every day. We talk about it every day. And even we didn't know just how huge it was. Mm. And kind of the one thing I wanted, because we could go on about this forever, right? But one of the things that I wanted, that I want to touch on before we stop is, you know, this whole belt and one belt, one road initiative that's taking place is actually really important in China. We'll get to that um, in, in future conversations. But the idea is you have to make a decision over time, okay? And that decision is really around do you want to build walls around stuff you already have? Do you want to build it or do you want to build bridges to connect people? Mm. I think that's the real question. And I think what Asia has decided as a whole is that they're much more likely to be building bridges to the rest of the world as opposed to building a wall around themselves and saying nobody else is allowed in because they understand that, you know, the mixing of ideas, you know, the mixing of diversity, all that kind of stuff is really important. And it manifests itself in things like this Hong Kong to Macau bridge, which is a massive project, which is due to open this year. And for someone like I am who, Went to Macau, I believe, in 1991, which just feels yeah. like centuries ago. The last millennium. It feels like two millenniums ago, but yeah, it's <laughs> millennium. Um, you know, we took a ferry there. Yeah. And I don't remember how long it took, okay, but it felt like a long way away. And it was just, it felt so retro even back then, and now you can drive there. That One Belt, One Road initiative I think people may have heard of this as we've been watching the news the last year. Just a quick heads up on that so people understand. It's a $5 trillion spend of infrastructure they believe will be outlaid on all the projects. $5 trillion. Wow. You know, and it's not just about China. Obviously, China's leading it, but that is all about building roads, ports, seaways, you know, train lines out of China, across Asia, into Europe. That's the the whole plan i mean you can see all these maps when you have a look at the map it just really is phenomenal what they're trying to achieve 65 percent of the world's population one third of the world's gdp and a quarter of the world's goods and services will be impacted by this initiative and that hasn't even really started yet and that's just no put that into the context of the asian century you know we're just getting started you want to say that number again? Five trillion dollars? I don't even know what five trillion dollars is. I know these trillions get banded around a lot these days, don't they? And they sort of, you know, okay. Debt of trillion dollars, nothing. Five thousand billion dollars. I mean, that's the size of it. The GDP of I don't know, a European country maybe? Maybe somebody can put us right. I don't know. Must be more, right? I don't know. It's hey, gotta be it's come, coming up in part two, coming up in part two, we're going to talk about ecosystems. We're going to talk about the evolving Asian startup ecosystems. On top of this is, you know, we talked about the foundation, which is the economy of Asia. The next right. layer that you build on that is the ecosystem. What are you looking forward to in that section of the report, Michael? Well, I'm just looking forward. So we, again, we talk a lot about numbers, right? But what I'm really looking forward to in section two is just talking about how that ecosystem is going to evolve and develop and how it's going to mature, right? We can talk about all the data around it. And this actually is a segue into something that happened to me today. I ran into, you know, what I'll call a micro venture capitalist today. Okay. And I asked them how business was. 
how's your business going? Hadn't seen them in a while. Okay, they're in my city. They're, they don't normally live in this city. And they said, oh, business is going great. I said, awesome. Like, what are the interesting things that are happening? Oh, we invested in these two companies in Thailand, whatever it was. That's super. And they told me what they were, right? I don't want to say what it is. And I'm like, awesome. How are their businesses going? Really interested, right? Because I'm really interested in business growth, right? And the answer I got was, they both got Series A funding. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, but that, 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 that doesn't mean anything. That, like, that doesn't lead to any success. That's not success. That's a fundraise. Mm-hmm. You know, money is a commodity. It's easy. Like anybody can raise. Really, and he said to me, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand the way the VC world works. And I thought, okay, but you're measuring your success by whether a company gets funded. Wow. Do you understand the difference? Like, yeah. You're not measuring success by revenue sales. growth, yeah. by CHGR, by sales, by anything else. You're measuring by it got funded. And that is what I'm looking forward to is the evolution and the maturity of the startup ecosystems, particularly as it comes to discussing how companies get funded, who's doing the investing. And the other thing that that person said to me today, which I thought was fascinating, was, yeah, but the people that invested in those companies are never going to help those companies grow. They're just not because they're not experienced, again, without saying who the next investor was and what the companies were. And the response was, money's money. I'll take it wherever I can get it. Wow. And I just thought that is the mark of a very immature and very inexperienced investor because actually money is a commodity, okay? And money is not money. There is really a difference between smart money and dumb money. And what I'm looking forward to is how the startup ecosystem evolves, particularly from an investment standpoint, who are the really great investors that understand that real businesses need real growth, not mm-hmm. just the next round of investment. I'm really looking forward to that. But also, like, you know, what is the vision for what those ecosystems are going to be? Who are going to be the important players? Who are the best accelerators? All that type of stuff that we sort of spent bits and pieces talking about during the year. Go into more detail about that in part two. Yeah. And that builds on the whole narrative that we've been talking about today about mega cities. Yep. Cities in general about them as startup ecosystems. Because nobody ever thinks of a country unless it's a, a a city country like Singapore, for example, yeah, as a yeah. as a startup ecosystem, right? So it's all about those cities and the vision that they have at city level to create this growth. So that's what we want to share. That's coming up next week on Asia Tech Podcast. If you're interested in grabbing yourself a copy of this report, you can go get part one. It's out now. If you go to asiatechpodcast.com slash Asia Matters, that's asiatechpodcast.com slash Asia matters all one word you can find the latest copies of the report there to download all you have to do is pop in your email address and we will email it to you hey if you've got any questions feedback thoughts you can tweet us on asia tech pod at asia tech pod on twitter everything that you um, want to talk about in the report is open for discussion you know, you can flame us, send us some love, send us some feedback, thoughts, insights, and so on on Twitter. We look forward to interacting with you. This is a conversation. So, you know, hey, Michael, somebody asked me today, and I suppose we've got to answer this question. You know, why are you giving this away for free? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, my, my natural reaction was, okay, right. How much do you want to pay for it? Right. But obviously, you know, there is a reason why we're giving this away from free. Let's talk about that because I think it's important, isn't it? Because there's no catch here. We're giving it. We're not trying to upsell something at the end of it. We have a mission. We have, uh, you know, 
we're planting a flag here. What are we trying to do? We're, look, we want people to know it's more important for us to understand that Asia matters rather than charging people, you know, fifteen ninety nine or seventy nine ninety nine for a report. This is a six hundred page report. You think about, you know, what some people who just run a newsletter do. They they charge a thousand dollars for a report like this. I don't really care. It's more important for me to be a facilitator of building this ecosystem in all of Asia. Yeah. Than to make a quick amount of money, and then again, that goes back to the venture capitalist that I ran into today, who was just more interested in making a quick buck and not really building an ecosystem and building real businesses. We want to build something gigantic here, and to do that, we need to build a conversation. We're not trying to entertain people necessarily. We're trying to educate people, inform people, and have a conversation with people. And the only way to do that is to get as much information out there as possible, as fast as possible, as detailed as possible. And as data driven as possible. Excellent. Yeah, it's all out there. Key message that you shared with us, Michael: entertainment or conversation. We're trying to do the conversation thing to build this startup ecosystem because you know you can do the well in the speed dating for startups, etc. It's all great entertainment. Shark Tank, think you know all those kind of knockout style tv led formats but sure you know the real way to build an ecosystem is to start a conversation that conversation we want to have is why asia matters so we want you to take part you can tweet us at asia tech pod or go and grab yourself a copy of the report for free as i said asia tech podcast.com slash asia matters we'll be back next week talking about the asian t- startup ecosystem and part two Whew. michael thank you so much to talk about there is thank you, Graham. you are awesome yeah you were awesomer i'll see you next week Thanks, bye. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.